Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Everybody, welcome to Night Like. This is going to be a fun show tonight because on top of the fact that I think the author that we're interviewing is spectacular, it's it's, you know, unashamedly one of my favorite other authors and that's uh Theodore Giselle, which who became Dr. Seuss. Um we're we're going to be talking about becoming Dr. Seuss tonight and um he was a definitive fascinating reaching amazing character in and of himself um, he is a classic American icon whimsical and wonderful his work has defined our childhoods and the childhoods of our own children I can absolutely agree with that statement wholeheartedly um, I think I became more of a fan um, ultimately because I was I keep finding new messages in all of his stories the silly simple rhymes are Bottomless Wells of Magic and his illustrations, timeless favorites, because quite simply, he makes us laugh. The Grinch, the Cat in the Hat, Horton, and so many more are his troop of beloved and uniquely Susian creations. Theodore Giselle, I don't know if that's really French or if it's Giselle, well, I'll have to ask. However, he had a second, more radical side. It is there that the allure and fascination of his Dr. Seuss alter ego begins. He had a successful career as an advertising man and then as a political cartoonist, and his personal convictions appeared not always subtly throughout his books. Remember the environmentalists of the Lorax. Giselle was a complicated man on an important mission. He introduced generations to the wonders of reading while teaching young people about empathy and how to treat others well. He agonized over word choices and rhymes, probably drove people crazy with that, touching up drawings and sometimes for years. 
he held he upheld a rigorous standard of perfection for his work. He took his responsibility as a writer for children seriously, talking down to no reader, no matter how small, and with whimsical classics like Green Eggs and Ham and One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, he taught and delighted them while they learned. Suddenly, reading became fun. Coming right off the heels of George Lucas and best-selling Jim Henson, which we did a, a few months ago, uh, Brian is quickly developing a reputation as a master biographer of the creative geniuses of our times. I can't wait to hear what's next. Um, certainly, we're going to go into the George Lucas book at some point in time within the next year, so keep keep posted and stay tuned because that's coming up probably not shortly, but, but sometime next year. Um, so welcome to the show, Brian. I'm so glad we finally got this one in. Hi, Barbara. Good evening. Good. It's, it, it's a great evening. I, this, Dr. Seuss was, um, I think, I found myself sitting in the children's department of Barron's and, and other bookstores reading the Dr. Seuss books without my child there. Um, I just, he, it, it was such an amazing, uplifting um, book to read because I loved the, the, uh, the, the whimsicalness and the amazing ways that he twisted rhymes that had no reason that became reason. And um, I just, I, my son had a full library that, that I continued to enjoy long after he was in college. And, you know, he, he one day sat down and took a look and he said, are you going backwards or what? I said, no, I'm waiting for grandchildren. So, <laughs> you know, I said, I'm armed and ready, and I'm glad I did because um, they they are treasured, treasured books. And, I mean, when you were a child, did you grow up on them, or, or were you out of sync with his time frame? No, and it wasn't a matter of being out of sync with him. It was one of those, you know, so many people I know learn how to read using Dr. Seuss books. I wasn't one of them. I learned how to read off of, you know, my mother bought my brother and I, reprints of Mad Magazine and things like that, that those were kind of what was around that I learned to read off of. To me, Dr. Seuss was always the dentist's office book. Um, and I always really actually looked forward, that was, I guess, one way to get me to go to the dentist, um, to reading Dr. Seuss books. And to me, uh, some of the first of his books I fell in love with um, were, you know, Bartholomew Coven's The 500 Hat. Some of that stuff that wasn't really the, the what we think of as, as the, sort of the, the un, you know, the pure, the, the real Dr. Seuss. It was some of that, what I now know is some of his really early stuff. So I, I came to him, um, my relationship with him was different than it was with a subject like Jim Henson, for example, who Jim Henson was somebody I was aware of from the time I was, you know, two years old. I was sort of Sesame Street Generation 1.0. Seuss was, was always around. <laughs> Um, but, you know, he, I, it, it wasn't one of these books that was, full, you know, one of these characters that was formative in my life the way Henson or maybe even Lucas was. So it, what I really loved about writing this book is I was kind of learning about him as I went along, and I'm sort of and, – and I'm conveying what I find fascinating about him to the reader almost in real time, if that makes sense. Um, so it was, oh, yeah. it was a little bit of a different – it was a little bit of a different relationship with, with my subject than I ever had before. Um, which which made it a really different and interesting and kind of fun book. Uh, well, all of my subjects have been fun, fortunately, but but it, it was it was a different book for me to write because of that relationship I had with Seuss that was not quite the formative relationship a lot of other people have with him. 
Well, it, it was interesting because um, I have a big website and I write a lot of stuff for it. And one of my favorite articles was, "Are you are you Horton or are you the Who?" And <laughs> and I I actually referred people back to reading the book to see if if you were someone who was screaming to be recognized or were you someone that was hearing a signal that came from somewhere that nobody else heard. Mm, and interesting. It was it was it was an amazing topic to to write on, and I, I got so many um, people who wrote me back and said, you know, I never looked at at the Dr. Seuss books as a moral lesson or an ethical lesson, and the you know after after my Hort, are you Horton or the Who, people went back and they started to read the books and they started to see the messages, you know, like. 30, 40, 50 years later that that what it, it taught you. And and it was amazing. I, I think in many ways he he didn't even realize how deep his his gift and his talent went. And that um he um he was putting forth philosophy that, you know, you have to be older and wiser to, to grab onto, but once you see the philosophy you know, and, and realize that it's been taught to the children, and that it, in some way, shape, or form, he has he has planted a seed of understanding of 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 uh, of a purity of spirit that that is just unbelievable. I think everybody should go back and read all the books again and find the messages that are in there. Well, and what's interesting about Seuss is he often, for most of his life, said that his message his books were not deliberately messagey. Um, but that you can find messages in them, and he loved that, that the, the message was whatever you were looking for. Um, sometimes, uh-huh. sometimes that came back to bite him, others sometimes it didn't. Um, but, for example, Horton Hears a Who, <clears throat> um, he has often said that that reflects the power of a single voter, for example, because they, what puts them over the top and when all the Who's start shouting is the very last one climbs up on top and says, Yah! And uh, he said later on, you know, raise your voice and, and let your yop be heard. And he compared that to the power of voting, for example. But the other thing in, in um, Horton Hears a Who is that um, um, you can be read very deliberately, and I think there's some of this intention from Seuss, as sort of his love letter to the people of Japan after World War II, after we had bombed them. Um, and in that book, if you notice his the, the dedication in that book, and I'm not going to even attempt to say the name, but it, he dedicated that to the gentleman. It was a professor who escorted him around Japan and was his translator. And the, a lot of people read that book as Sue saying, you know, we know we know something terrible happened to you. We acknowledge, we see you, we hear you, we acknowledge you. Um, and so that book can also be read as sort of as sort of Seuss's love letter to the Japanese people. Seuss later in his life became a real sort of Japanophile. Um, and, you know, took vacation or trips over there, and, and was was an enormous fan of the Japanese people, Japanese art, Japanese culture. So you can you can definitely read Horton Hears Who that way as well. Um, but any other way you wanted to read stuff, again, Seuss often said, "I you know I, I'm not putting a message in there. If you saw a message, that's yours to get." Um, the one deliberate message he always did have that he that he would fess up to in his lifetime was, um, "Yertle the Turtle" was Adolf Hitler. Um, the Lorax was his deliberately preachy book, as he often said. That was his environmental book. Um, uh-huh. And, the, and uh, the Grinch was sort of his own statement on um, um, consumerism, uh, which he, con- you know, 
totally admitted to being a part of. He had been an ad man for years. You know, part of his job was to tell you Christmas came from a store. Um, and in the and in the Grinch, you see sort of Seuss working that out. So. Yeah, there, there. I and I, I can remember sitting reading one of the books to my son, and and my mother sticking her head in the room and saying, you know, he's been asleep for the last half hour. I said, yeah, but I haven't finished the book yet. So. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about, you know, writing about Seuss is I got to go back and revisit all the books that I had read and so many more that I had never even heard of. Um, when I started this project and had you asked me to write down Dr. Seuss books, I could probably have given you the greatest hits. Um, you know, I might not have been able to get past 10, maybe, and not really <laughs> appreciating um, that he wrote more than 60, um, you know, wow. from, for, for a period of 19, you know, 30 on um, through 19, through the 1990s. So he's got, he's got an awful lot of books. And so that was, that was the really fun part for me was getting to go back and read the ones I remembered. Like I said, Bartholomew Cobbins and it's sort of the greatest hits. But a lot of these other uh-huh. little, you know, these these that I'd never heard of. If I ran the zoo, and if I ran the circus, and Happy Birthday to You, and you know, sort of these these middle tier books that he wrote in the fifties before he really, um, and we'll talk about this before he really became Doctor Seuss. You know, was just sort of still putting them out every once in a while. Um, those are they're some really beautiful books. Some of them have gotten him in trouble since then, um, but they're just they're really <laughs> lovely books. And some of those from that period, I think, have his best are some of his best rhymes. Some of his bounciest rhymes. He's just—I mean—he's a real tour de force, and you can really see him as you're reading his work, figuring things out, which is one of the things I thought was so interesting. And again, that was why I called that book "Becoming Doctor Seuss," because, again, not really knowing that much about him, it was fascinating to watch him have several careers before he finally settles into what we now think of and know of as Doctor Seuss. Yeah, he came. Uh, I, I, as I recall, he, it almost started in college to a degree, didn't it? He, uh, you know, he 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 was a mediocre student. He was about a two point five GPA student at Dartmouth, um, and ended up getting a scholarship. Well, he didn't get a scholarship. He he made up a story that he got one, then so he didn't want to go public with it. His father paid for him to go to Oxford, and um, <laughs> and when he was at Oxford, he was much more interested in drawing in his notebooks than he was in taking notes in them. Uh, one of my favorite documents in the Seuss Library in at uh, in California is his his heart his uh, Oxford journal is there. And you open it, and you can see he's taking really diligent notes on the first couple of pages, and then the drawings start showing up in the margins. And as you keep turning pages, the drawings get larger and larger and larger, and eventually <laughs> there's no writing left, no writing left on the page. And that was when another young American woman who was attending classes over there said, "You know, you—that's what you should be doing." And that turned out to be Helen, who was his first wife. Um, she's the one who said, "You know, somebody who draws crazy-looking animals like you uh, should be doing that for a living." Now, Seuss had worked at the the newspaper that it's called it was called Jack O' Lantern. It was sort of their version of the National Lampoon or the Harvard Lampoon. Um, most Ivy League colleges had a satirical newspaper or magazine at the time, and that was the Dartmouth version. And he was sort of like finding his way there. He wasn't really, you know, he, there was no way he was coming out fully formed as Dr. Seuss. And he's still finding his way, finding the pseudonym. For example, he finally signs a drawing as um, Seuss when he's in college. He doesn't come up with Dr. Seuss until later. Um, but he's sort of finding his way. But he, after he leaves college, he and Helen get married, and he moves to New York City. 
and begins making a career, as hard as it is to believe, you could make a full-time career submitting cartoons to Life magazine and Vanity Fair. And, um, um, you know, he ended up being sort of the regular cartoonist for a magazine called Judge. So, um, so did that for, for quite a while and sort of accidentally stumbled into becoming a really successful advertising man. Um, when a cartoon of his that showed <clears throat> a knight laying in bed and there's this dragon sticking his head in the window, actually a terrible dragon. Seuss isn't very good at drawing dragons, but this dragon sticking his head in the window, and Seuss says, the, the knight says, drat it all, and here I just sprayed the place for flips, which was a bug spray at the time, which had DDT in it. That was one of its big selling points. Um, um, but the flips people, um, which it actually came out of like Esso and Standard Oil, um, got wind of that cartoon. In fact, the wife of the, the man at the advertising firm, I think it was McCann Erickson, if you watched Mad Men, you should know that name. Um, she came home and said, I just saw the greatest ad for you know one of your clients here. You need to hire this guy to be your ad man for Flit. And so Sue sort of backed into being hired to be the advertising man for Flit, which is a job he does, I, I want to say, for 17 or 20 years or something like that. And that was sort of his regular source of income was becoming an advertising man. And kids' books was not anything he had this driving passion for. You know, that, that was one of the things I found so interesting about Seuss is he, he's not one of these people who, you know, early on says, oh, I, wanna, I really want to write books for kids. He ends up writing his first book for children, which is um, – it ends up being the uh, end of things that I saw on Mulberry Street, mainly because it's not prohibited by the contract he has with Standard Oil. You know, in the contract he's got for his split campaign, there's a whole bunch of non-compete clauses. Like he can't, he can't write and do ads and drawings for other people. But there was a loophole in his contract that excluded children's books. So he gets into writing kids' books mainly because the money's on the table for that. Now, it turns out he's pretty good at it, but it wasn't one of these great callings that he kind of had, at least not early on. And, again, that's when he sort of starts becoming Dr. Seuss. But a book like And to Think That I Saw on a Mulberry Street – um, was inspired by he and his wife, Helen, were on a cruise, and they were listening to the sounds of the engine sort of turning over with this regular rhythm, and that became the rhythm he adopted. Um, as I found out, it, I think it's called anapestic, iambic anapest, I think is the actual the form, formal name for that rhyme scheme. Um, uh, that becomes, and to think that I saw on a Mulberry Street, a book that was rejected something like 27 times, although Seuss, who never let the truth get in the way of a good story, uh, it was rejected 27 times, 55 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. <laughs> Every time he told the story, he got more and more, about 27 times until it finally found a home. Uh, and so that was that was Seuss's first book. But, again, not the result of any great burning need to, to write books for young kids. That comes later. Well, don't you think um, it seems that, that people who have a, a calling, you know, often don't hear it until they fall into it? Well, that's exactly right, and I think that's exactly what happened with Seuss. Um, let me, I'll jump over a little bit of his career because he, he ends up with a fascinating career as an editorial cartoonist for a little while. But after he comes out of the military, he had been sort of wooed by Hollywood. He was a really good um, movie writer when he was in the Army. He did a lot of training films, and so Hollywood sort of came calling. And he was really unhappy with that. But he, because he had written a number of children's books, and at that point in his career, I think he'd written six or seven, not very many, he gets asked to teach a course on writing books for children at the University of Utah in 1949, I think it is. And it's a really hugely important moment, not just for Seuss, but for children's books in general. Because, And, and this was another document that I, that I laid hands on 
at the Seuss archives because it's in his handwriting. It's on yellow pads in his penciled writing. And it's him putting down on paper for the very first time ever why he thinks kids deserve books of their own, why he thinks they deserve good books, and, and what is it that keeps children interested. And he acknowledges, for example, that comic books are your main competition. And, you know, why do kids like comics? Because they're interesting and they're fun and they're fast and they're colorful. And this is, this is who you're competing with. And so if you're writing for kids, make your books interesting, make them colorful, make them fast. And he had learned a lot in the military doing training films with Frank Capra, believe it or not, was his commanding officer. And Capra's the one that sort of told him about when you're writing scripts. You know, he says, keep the plot moving forward. I'm going to underline in your script, like, what is plot and what is not. And Seuss learned about plot and how that's so important. So story is what gets kids. Um, But it's a really important moment because it's Seuss, you know, sort of convincing himself, talking to himself about how important it is for children to have books that they deserve is the word he kept using. That you, you don't want to give children these terrible, boring books. He always called them the bunny bunny books uh, about cute little bunnies. No, no kid wants to read that. They want to read books that are, that are fun and interesting and, and a little dangerous. Um, so it's a really important moment in, in Seuss sort of figuring it out. And it's also a time in, in children's books. Where I think you had um, Eloise was starting to come out. Um, so you had a couple of sort of character-driven, like uh, Curious George had just come out. So you had some people that were starting to figure it out a little bit. But for the most part, children's books were very, um, I don't want to say preachy, but they were mostly about the moral, uh, more about message than they were about entertainment. And Seuss just kept saying, there's nothing wrong with entertaining kids. Stop boring them. Uh, and that's the first real step in his career uh, and in, in his own mindset as a writer for children. Well, I, I just uh, so so. Did the artwork come first, or the story? T- it had to be the artwork. Um, they sort of both come together, but he he, you know, the story was usually what he came up with first, and and then would start writing the rhyme. And Seuss had learned from again from the time he was in the military and working for Frank Capra. When Seuss was in the Army, he worked for the Signal Corps during World War II in the United States. He didn't ever go to Europe, at least not to fight. Um, and his commanding officer was Frank Capra, and they were producing training films for soldiers who were, you know, for the most part, a lot of them were illiterate. So you had, to, you had to entertain them and train them, and a lot of the ways they did this was with cartoons, and they created a character called Private Snafu. And Seuss wrote a lot of these Private Snafu, a lot of these Private Snafu cartoons. And Capra was the one who taught him, you know, like, like this, you know, plot is what matters. But plot, but 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 Capra, because he was a film director, taught him how to storyboard, and he also learned how to storyboard from Chuck Jones, who was an up and coming animator at Warner at that time. Later becomes the animator. Like if, if any Bugs Bunny cartoon you love, probably had Chuck Jones's name on them. Later, what's Opera Doc and One Froggy Evening and all the huge ones. Um, but he wasn't that Chuck Jones yet. But so he learns how to. Seuss learns how to storyboard. And that becomes really important to the way he worked. In his office, in, in his, uh, he lives in La Jolla, California, he actually had corkboard on the wall. And he would pin his pages up on the wall that had, he would type out the, the rhyme and the story. And sometimes he would draw sort of rough draft sketches. And he would just walk around the room and stare at these pages. And part of what mattered was not just the sound of the words, but how did the words look on the page, for example. If the rhyme scheme was perfect, but you had two lines that were two, two inches long or two and a half inches long, and the third line was five inches long, and then the third line, and then the last line was two and a half inches long again, 
Zeus didn't like that. He didn't like the way that looked on the page. That line was too long. Even if it scanned perfectly fine and the rhyme was fine, he would go back and rewrite it because it just didn't look right even on the page. So he had this real um, need to, that had to be per, almost perfect. Like it wasn't just the way the words sounded. It was the way they worked, looked on the page, which seems a little crazy, but it really made him work to be sure that every word mattered, that there's not a word wasted. And that's one of the one of the neat things about Seuss. If you're reading, and you, you know this, Barbara, from reading them out loud even to your kids, you never have to work to make the rhyme. You never have to, like, say a word funny to make the rhyme work in Seuss, you know? Like, you never have to, oh, yeah. have to like, enunciate a three-syllable word oddly. You never, it's, you know, it's, if Seuss is going to use the word refrigerator, it's going to scan as refrigerator, not refrigerator. Um, if that makes uh-huh. any sense, he just, like, the words he, his his words are pronounced naturally because he worked really hard at that. He didn't want you stumbling over a rhyme and ruining the rhyme because you were mispronouncing a normal word in a weird way to make the rhyme scheme work. So everything really mattered to Seuss. But he would have the art up on the wall, rough drafts, rough sketches of that. He was very particular about color. Um, he would often take a like a colored pencil and break it and send it to the printing shop at Random House and say, match this color green, please, um, and make them go find it on their color wheel. <laughs> so everything really, really mattered. Everything really mattered to him. And I think that's one of the reasons his books are so good, why they sort of transcend generations, is because he puts so much work into them that makes them sort of timeless. Um, and Seuss's art in itself is is for the most part pretty timeless too, which is I think one of the reasons his work is still so popular. You can't place it in a time period. It doesn't really look like it belongs. It, it's time. It, it doesn't look like it belongs anywhere. It, it is timeless. You go back and look at something like Mulberry Street, which is clearly sort of taking place in the 1930s. Um, and again, that's where Sue started to get into trouble because he's got depictions of you know Chinese people in that book um, that that are not terribly sensitive by today's standards. Um, but that's why if he gets away from drawing more realistic and drawing what we now call sort of Seussian creatures, that gives his work that real sense of it could be happening anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Yeah, that's that's one of the um, – he, he often – I was amazed at the creativity inside of his head. It was just – it had to be amazing because it, it felt like almost every – it felt like he was constantly drawing and rhyming and, and, and immersing himself in another topic. Um, it, it didn't feel like he really took any time off for anything. He, you know, he had an amazing sense of humor and yeah. often, you know, a little strange. And um, cocktail he was unique. Hour. I, cocktail hour. Oh, yeah. No, he. It, it. It. To me, it was just. It was phenomenal, and the fact that he had a, a partner, a wife, for so very long, that supported him totally. It was just amazing. And, and then he. Go ahead. Then he grew out of her. Well, and and Helen, and, his first wife, was was absolutely. Brilliant, yeah. I mean, she's 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 a as strong a character in his story as, as anybody, I think. Well, I, I, that's what amazed me. I mean, he um, he was he was connected to her on on so many different levels, 
And then suddenly that connection wasn't there anymore, and she didn't understand it either. But no. I think what got to me was when that connection was gone, so was he on, on an emotional level. And um, I don't think she ever understood, and I probably wouldn't have been able to either, just what happened. But you he kind of switched horses. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he switched yeah. he, he switched horses in the middle of the stream, which most people don't do. But and when he did, there was there was not a bit of remorse, or it it didn't appear that that there was there was mourning of any sort. I'm sure there was to a degree, but but he just he moved on, and it was almost like you know it it you know it, it's over, and I have to move on, and and he did. I mean, yeah. to the wife of a good friend. I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah. that he and his, that he and his wife had socialized with. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's so interesting with with three of my subjects with Jim Henson, George Lucas, and Dr. Seuss. All three of them had these incredible partners in their life. These women who were brilliant, who supported them, who were. Um, who they all absolutely trusted. Like Helen, for example, was the one person who could tell Seuss no. Um, she would be the one who would just call BS on him and say, you know, this isn't working. She was one of the few people who could do that, who he would listen to. Um, you know, she, she would come out and, and say, you, you've drawn this wrong, or this is too big, or this is too small. And he might complain, but he would always know she was right. Jim Henson was kind of that way with, with Jane. He would check in with her immediately after he did a Tonight Show appearance. Was I okay? How did it look? Um, George Lucas was like this with, with his wife, um, Marsha, who was a brilliant editor. Uh, she has the Academy Award. He doesn't um, for editing Star Wars. And so all three oh, wow. of them had these brilliant, all three of them had these brilliant wives um, who were, you know, absolute creative partners and who they all three lost either through intentional or benign neglect. Um, I just think it's it's fascinating because the, 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 all those women from from Marsha Lucas, from Helen Helen Geisel to to um, to Jane Henson, all three of them are so important in the story of of of, of those characters. Um, you know, they were there from the beginning. They were the, they helped them uh, start their companies. They encouraged them, inspired them, they supported them. Uh, and like I said, there were times it was intentional and times it was benign. But um, I just find it fascinating that that's a through line in those three stories. Yeah, and and to me it was, especially with Helen. Helen I, I felt for more than than, um, than Henson's wife because, of course, he kept, he kept that contact throughout his life yeah. even though they weren't married anymore. I mean, right. she she was always the one he went back to to check in with, and and when he became very ill, she was right there. So, um, you know that that you know that one I could understand, and I I I, I felt okay with, but with <laughs> with with Giselle, I mean, come on. Well, the, the hor- I mean, it's- yeah, the horrifying, the really horrifying part of the story with with he and Helen is, you know, I mean, Helen Helen had health issues. And um, he had nursed her through several long-term illnesses. She had had polio as a child, and so, you know, she had she always seemed to have long-term health issues. And he, he to his credit, early on was hugely supportive. And he always talked about what an angel he was. But as time went on, and she, you know, came more and more incapacitated. I think, yeah, you saw him losing. I don't know if it was losing interest necessarily, but you know, that was when his attention got pulled by by Audrey. 
Um, but the really heartbreaking part of that story is that she takes her own life and, and yeah. leaves a, just, a, just a really heartbreaking note behind for that. So I think, I think that's what makes her story truly devastating. I don't know how much longer she would have, you know, how long she would have lived had, had she not done that. But, you know, she, and she, in her letter, she just says, you know, it's, you, we're not going to ruin your reputation. I mean, she's thinking of him till the very end. Um, Susan's first biographer actually called that note like her last great gift to him, which I think is a little dark and a little weird. But, um, but, um, yeah. but I mean, it's, it's a heartbreaking moment in his story. And like you said, I mean, he almost rebounds too quickly. I think he was married to Audrey within six months or something like that, it, as long as it took for her to go to Reno and get the divorce because she was married as well. Um, so, you know, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's the one portion of the story. And, again, I didn't know that when I, when I started researching him. But it is that moment that sort of, you know, hits you in the face as you're reading along. Um, um, just not not an expected part of the story. Now I see people on social media telling just horrible stories about you know their their relationship. Yeah, how she was actually the one that wrote and drew all the stories, and he stole her work. And you know none of, none of that is true. Like he can behave badly without you know without uh, stealing any of her her artwork. She did she did not do the writing and the drawing. That was all too. No, no, I I just think there was uh, you know when i hit that part of the book it was oh no she didn't yeah it's, it's, and, it's a, yeah it's a it's a real tone shift isn't it well it it is and it was sort of like i understood i i understood why she did what she did you know she just mm-hmm. um i i understand why she did it and you know maybe he did too but i mean uh i mean he blatantly went after his friend's wife and and yeah. you know it it wasn't it wasn't oh we fell into each other because of my loss hell no you created the loss and <laughs> right. you know, yeah it was already going on and you know but but you know and they had absolutely um i i do believe they felt they belonged together and they probably did um so that so that you know i i understand it i understand that that sometimes absolute genius does things that don't fit in with with society um that's not an excuse that's just an explanation and mm-hmm. and uh you know it, it just to me um i know she she was she was good for him and with him and she was supportive of him and you know she was there to the end and and all of that but um yeah, it, it's just I didn't like her. <laughs> yeah, no, and you know, and she was there. Really, you know, she had a very different role than than Helen had. Um, you know, she stayed she stayed out of his work. She she let him take care of the work, and she took care of of the social side, which was always you know pretty important to Seuss. You know, throughout his life, during during Prohibition, he and Helen, you know, they went out to to bars every night during Prohibition. They were they were a very social couple. Um, and, and Audrey kind of kept that up um, when they were together. She would throw these big elaborate parties at the house, and they had this, these amazing guest lists. One of their neighbors right down the hill from where they live in La Jolla was Jonas Falk. Um, you know, they had this really interesting guest list and this interesting circle of friends um, that she sort of kept everything going. But, you know, she was apparently the life of the party, um, and he adored her two children. Now, Seuss and Helen, um, she was, uh, Helen was unable to have children, so they, they didn't have children of their own. Um, and Seuss always said, you have them all, entertain them. 
but he had to sort of learn to be a parent to to Audrey's two daughters who were teenagers when when he came along. But um, that was the first time he actually had to had to think like a parent, which he'd never actually done before. Well, they, they did fill a void in, in his um, concept of life in, as we know it, too. So, um, and he was really good with them. I mean, he really he put the work in. Um, yeah. And and you know I just I I I really his artwork fascinated me. I'm I'm not an artist by any means. I mean I can doodle a good square and that's about it. But <laughs> what flowed out of him automatically, you know, when he let his his mind loose to to be creative, was just amazing. And, and you wonder where does that come from. Yeah, and and it's a style that looks easy to imitate, and it's not. Um, oh and there's goodness. little things, and there's little things in his art that you don't, you know, you don't realize is what makes it look Susian. For, for example, everybody has um, eyelashes. If you look at <laughs> them, they all have eyelashes on them, and you know they have these really wide, expressive eyes. And it's just there's something about his that that style that if you try to, you can copy it, but you can't mimic it. If that makes sense. Um, because there's just something about the way his, his characters, the way gravity works on his characters. If you, like if you look at a book like Cat in the Hat, um, open that book up and find any time the cat's feet are on the ground. Uh, they're on the ground at the end when he's kind of sad, but for the most part, that the cat is constantly in motion. Uh, you go page to page, and like his legs are are you know are rubbery. I mean, he's got sort of a He's got a physics to him, but it's, it's, you know, gravity works different on the cat. His feet aren't on the ground. They're never touching the ground. His legs are bent. His mouth is always open. I mean, he's, he's, got, this, he's got this motion to him constantly. Um, and I think that's one of the things um, that keeps kids turning the pages in that book um, because the cat is always constantly moving forward, 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 and you want to see where he's going to go uh, with that book. But uh, let, let me let me talk at, at this point because the cat has a good place to to bring this up. So I so I've talked a little bit about some of his other careers, and the moment I think he really becomes what we think of as Dr. Seuss, the one who's writing the great books for children. It happens that early in his career he's writing books that children love, um, but he gets to a point in his life when he starts deliberately writing books that have sort of a pedagogy behind them, that not only are they fun to read, but they help you learn to read. And that comes out of, um, it actually comes out of a, a Life magazine article written by John Hersey. Um, he was sort of a Nobel Prize winning um, novelist. And he did an article in Life magazine doing what we all sort of do as a, as a in our culture, like every five or ten years, we, we bring our hands and say, why aren't kids learning? You know, why aren't they reading? Why are test scores down? And you always try to find some reason, whether, you know, it's video games or it's social media or it's comic books or whatever. Um, what John Hersey said is children aren't learning to read because the children's primers we give them, which in this case was still the Dick and Jane books, literally Dick and Jane uh -huh. books. He said, he said Dick and Jane are awful. Um, the books are, you know, the, the, they're boring. The art is terrible. You know, nobody's interested in Dick and Jane and their lives in a quiet desperation. They want something fun. Um, why, don't you dress, why don't you just get Dr. Seuss to illustrate one for crying out loud? He mentions Dr. Seuss and Walt Disney. He says, why don't you get one of these guys to illustrate one? Maybe that would help. And Seuss actually has a friend who publishes children's books and who says, you know, I don't want you to just illustrate one. I want you to write 
a book that a first grader can't put down. Um, but the catch for it is, is Dick and Jane, the one thing they have going for them is that there's a pedagogy to Dick and Jane. They have, there is an educator-approved word list um, based on uh-huh. grade level. So if you're, if you're aiming for like a, you know, first or third grade reading level, it's, you've got a vocabulary list of about, you know, 400 words. Educator-approved words that they, that they believe children should all know. But you can't deviate from that list. And Seuss equated this to a literary straitjacket. So they, they hand Seuss this list and they say, you know, write me, write me a book for, for children. Um, and Seuss stares at this thing for more than a year um, and just can't get anything down because getting to your question about is it the art of the story, what he's trying to do first is find the story. And he says at one point, you know, I wanted to write about, he had just written the book on Beyond Zebra, which is about a different kind of alphabet. And he said, you know, I, I thought it would be interesting to write about it, maybe a, a, a queen zebra. Well, zebra is not on the list and queen's not on the list. Um, you know, he said, maybe I could write something about climbing a mountain. Well, mountain's not on the list. Um, so you can't, you can't just add words arbitrarily to the list. And if you want to make something plural, for example, um, if the pluralized version of that word is not on the list, you can't use it. That's how restrictive it is. So oh, he, wow. just talked about the, he just talked about the agony of staring at that list for a year. Now, again, Seuss always loved good stories, but I think there's an, an element of truth to this. What he, what he finally says was, I was going to throw that list across the room, but I decided to look through it one more time and just find things that rhymed and started working off of that. Uh, he said that the first thing he saw which rhymed was tall ball, and that wasn't really a, a starter. That was a non-starter. But then he saw cat and hat and decided that were, there was something, there was enough there, and that was sort of how he got his start. Beyond that, it took him another year to write that book, to write and illustrate that book, again, working with that word list. Um, but when this book comes out, I mean, it's, it's lightning in a bottle because it does a number of things. Kids want to read it because it's hilarious. Um, it doesn't look like any other reading primer they've ever read. I mean, it's got Seuss art in it. It's got this cat in it whose feet aren't touching the ground. Um, it's uh-huh. funny. It's got a hook. It's got a hook at the end. It's got sort of an open-ended question at the end, which is what would you do? Um, so kids love it. Teachers love it because it's got the educator-approved word list, and parents love it because it's not boring. It's a fun book to read out loud to your kids. So he sort of captured all three major audiences for the book. So it's his huge, huge success his really his first um Seuss is you know 52 or 54 years old when this book comes out and it's his first real major hit that's when he can finally become Dr. Seuss full-time he doesn't have to keep another day job in advertising he can dedicate himself now full-time to creating more books for children using this pedagogy using these educator approved word lists and and sets up his own imprint, which um, which was beginner books that has all these educator-approved word lists for it, and recruiting other writers and authors to write books for this. Like he, he's the one who finds Stan and Jan Berenstain, um, and and they do the Berenstain Bears. He's their editor. You know, he recruits them to do uh-huh. this and recruits them to draw. So so anyway, that's the moment Seuss sort of has the purpose behind his work. You know, he always thought kids deserve great books. We talked about that in 1949 when he writes down why kids deserve great books. When we get to 1954 and 57, when Cat in the Hat comes out, that's when he says they not only deserve great books, but they deserve, you know, books that can teach them as well without putting them to sleep. And really nobody has thought of that before. Um, so that's his, that's his breakaway hit. Um, now, weirdly, the other book that comes out in the in fall that year is, um, is The Grinch comes out that year. Now, 
the Grinch doesn't use that word list. Um, those are what was always called the big books um, that don't didn't use the educator approved list. So um, the the beginner books like Cat in the Hat and things like Fox and Fox books like that they use the educator approved word list. Books like the Grinch, the Lorax. Um, they don't rely on that educator list. We sort of had two tiers of books going. But that's, that's the really important moment in life, you know, not only because you're starting to get kids' books that kids want to read and have this pedagogy, but it's also the moment Seuss can become Seuss sort of full-time. Wow. Well, he, I, I took a message from him. I taught special ed uh, for 25 years, and I, I, I had kids who were 16, 17, 18, and, you know, who could not read, and I had one – in my classroom that, that he insisted he could not read and he would not read. And I said, well, I think you're lying to me. And he said, I'm not lying. I said, yeah, you are. And so I took his notebook that had every foul word you could possibly imagine written on it. And I put them all up on the board and I changed letters. And by the end of, I, I kept him after school, and by the end of, I think, the second hour, um, my boards were all full of words. And I said, okay, so tell me what they say. And, and by the time he got done with just switching a letter here and there, he said, I can read all those words. I said, if you can read all those words, you can read every other word there is. And <laughs> from that moment on, he was a reader. Of course, I got in big trouble with my principal because my starting <laughs> list was definitely every – a couple of them I'm pretty sure he didn't, he didn't recognize. I didn't either. I had to pull somebody aside and say, what does this mean, and should I never say it? And they, they would get oh, all red and say, no, don't ever say that one. And, and um, it took me a while to actually learn all the words that he had up there. I wasn't going to ask him, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, but by the end of that year – he was actually reading above grade level because he started with all the foul words that he really knew. <laughs> so, um, yeah, oh, much. <laughs> <laughs> so it works. It works. And, yeah. Well, you know, that was, I, what was I interesting just, about Seuss's books is they actually would use them in prisons, and prisoners who couldn't read would read Seuss books, partly because, they, you know, prisoners didn't want people to know they couldn't read. Um but if you gave them Seuss books, everybody was reading Dr. Seuss books. So they said it really encouraged even non-readers to read. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And even if it's just, uh, I, I know with my son, it was from memory from seeing me read it and point to it over and over again. Not sure he got the concept of it, but he he could read the word. And, yeah. and, and then all you have to do is, you know, switch a letter and, you know, you've got cat, hat, pat, tat. You know, you, you, it's it, it's if the kid understands that the sounds create the words, all they have to do is learn the sounds. So, mm-hmm. well, and that's it what was, I it think. Was, that's what's so fun if you read the Cat in the Hat and you and you know what you now know about how it's it's got the pedagogy behind it and it's Seuss using the educator word list. Watch how he's working. Um, as, as you said, there's a lot of repetition in there. Um, and then there's one page even where the cat is balanced on a ball and he starts juggling. And it's a moment that Seuss can sort of download a whole bunch of words off his word list because it talks about how he's juggling a boat and a car and a 
and a man, and you know, you see this little, this little, you know, action figure he's juggling, a, a ball, a plate, a cake, a rake, um, every everything. He, he just downloads a ton of words off that list on that single page right there. Um, now the thing Seuss always always was when he was training other writers. Um, to use those wordless in writing books like, for example, Go Dog Go. A lot of people, when I was starting to write Seuss, would say, oh, my God, I love Go Dog Go. That's actually not written or drawn by Seuss. He edited it, uh, but didn't draw it. Or, or Are You My Mother is also not a book that he wrote or illustrated, uh, but he edited that book. But, you know, he would, he would explain to them, you know, you can't draw something, for example, that's not referenced in, in the words. You know, if, if you if you're if, if you're writing about um, you know a bird with a ball and you show on your page a bird with a ball and in the background there's a doghouse, um, you, you can't do that because that's not mentioned in, on the page. It was a very you know, strict set of rules he had imposed on himself and other writers because he, he again he wanted to be sure he was being absolutely fair to the reader. Um, there's, uh-huh. I think one of the very first books he edited was. Um, Oh, I can't remember. It's about uh, an owl and a firefly, and I think the owl's name is Sam. And the word owl is actually not on the approved word list, but I don't believe they ever actually call the owl an owl. He's always just Sam. And that made Seuss crazy um, that they weren't actually using the word owl when they were drawing him as the main character. Uh, but that's actually one of the, one of the best-selling of those, those books under the, um, under the beginner book imprint. Um, and that was one that sort of violated the rules. But, but you know, Seuss had a very strict set of rules, and not everybody could, could write under that. It was very hard um, to stick with those rules. And eventually, Seuss himself started to move away from the word list. Even he kind of, like, threw some of it to the wind, and he would make plurals if that weren't always allowed. Um, but um, I, I think at that point, he thought, well, he knows what he, he knew what he was doing enough. But, um, but, you know, there was another editor he was working with who was very strict about that word list, and he got to the point where it wasn't quite so much. But, you know, he, he sat at the helm of beginner books for a long, long time. That was really important to him. Um, some of the books in that collection he wrote and drew, some he did not. Um, sometimes he would have a book that another writer had started, for example, and maybe they couldn't handle the word list or they, they couldn't follow the rules the way he wanted to, and sometimes he would have to step in and rescue those books. And when that happens, though not always, but if you see a book by, um, um, uh, I can't remember the name, um, Lassie is how he credits it. Uh, the book will be L-E-S-I-E-G, which is Guys Will Spell Backwards. Uh, that's a book that he huh. probably That's a book that he probably rescued. Well, how did he actually, I mean, he, he, he did not have a doctorate. So how did he become Dr. Seuss? What what? <laughs> So he, he actually was started turn, signing his work. He actually started he started signing his work as Doctor Seuss back in the 1920s. I believe I think 1928 might have been the first time it actually appeared. And it's because he was he was writing um, humorous pieces for Judge magazine, and he had this one uh, single page about the history I think of bridge, and um, and yet there's a drawing illustrating it, but he's writing this very tongue-in-cheek erudite piece about the history of bridge and so he wants you to take him seriously so he signs it dr theodore Seuss geisel i think or dr theodore seuss i think is all he signs. but he just added that that name doctor on the front of it to make it sound like he was much more serious than he really was you have to believe it if it was written by a doctor don't you um so that was where the nickname dr seuss came from now if you want to be a purist he's he's of german extraction it's actually Seuss, not seuss um, but no one ever pronounced it that way. 
Oh, okay. And uh, the first name, Giselle, Giselle? What, um, Geisel. It's Geisel. Geisel. Oh, Geisel. Geisel. I made it uh-huh. French. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very I, I, German. His family, his family was all German brewers. It's a very German name. And it's Theodore with no E on the end. My, my. He, he and just, his, father I mean, was also, I, his father was also Theodore, guys, as was his grandfather, which made writing that first chapter really tough. I would think so. <laughs> I, I end up but calling I, them, I think, by their full names every time. I, I think what makes the books that, you know, I've only read two, so I can't be global about this, but what I, I have found fascinating about the two books that I've read is that you are so meticulous about, you know, really going into the background of the people that he was with and and you go into their background as well so that, I mean, you, you, you become so familiar with the subject. Do you ever confuse yourself and become it? <laughs> uh, not, not really. I mean, I'm not one of these people, though, who can compartmentalize. So I have a you know a colleague who wrote a really great book about Richard Nixon, and you know I don't know that I could live with Nixon for the five years it takes us to do this. I need a, somebody who I who was kind of in my lane and who I might want to hang out with. So I need a I need a character more like that. Um, I, I I never get my lines blurred on that, but I I I love to be the fly on the wall of the creative process. That to me is the most interesting part of the stories, which is why I like to look at the people they worked with and try to give you a little idea of those people and the background for them. Um, and, um, you know, sense of place. Robert Carroll always talks about how sense of place is so important, and I absolutely agree with that. You know, why, why did Seuss love sitting in that office on the top floor of his home that overlooked the ocean? You know, he had ocean views on all three sides. If you see that room, with you understand now why he loved that room so much and why he was able to treat what he did as a, as a job. I think that's one of the things that's so Im- impressive and important about Seuss is his entire life he worked, meaning he got up every morning, <clears throat> ate breakfast, and went to sit at his desk at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he would stay there until 5. And if ideas came, he, he wrote and drew all day, and if they didn't, he still stayed there at that desk. He wasn't going to move. He wasn't going to go out to the golf. He wasn't going to say screw it and go out to the golf course. He might stand and look out the window, um, but he wasn't going to leave that office. I mean, that office was such an important room to him, partly because he had disciplined himself enough to sit there and do the work. Um, you know, and you have people nowadays who talk about ten thousand hours. How it takes ten thousand hours to get you know extraordinary at anything. I mean, Seuss put in those hours every day, uh, whether whether the words came or whether a squiggle of a line of a drawing came, he was at that desk doing the work, which I think is a, a really incredible uh, – I've never added up the hours, but, I mean, it's a really incredible work ethic. Did it his entire life. Well, that, now, even as, even as he got older, he would still – he might cut down the number of hours, uh, but he still always went and sat down at that desk. I think, I think it's – I mean, that room and that desk were so important to him that even in his last years as he was ill um, – he moved into that room. He had the couch that he loved so much made into his bed, and he stayed in that office. It's the room that he died in. Uh, it was so important to him. That's what uh, Hemingway did. He stood at his typewriter for eight hours a day, whether he wrote or not. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's what, you know, George Lucas did that when he was, when he had to sit down to, you know, write Star Wars. And Lucas always talked about how he was such a terrible writer. But he would sit down at that desk every morning and sit there and try to do five pages a day, whether they were good pages or not. He would try to get those pages down. And then at the end of the day, he had this calendar hanging on his desk, and he would draw a big fat X through the date at the end of the day to mark that he had finished yet another day. But it was, you know, he called it bleeding on the page. It was absolute misery, but he made himself sit there. Well, now, I can understand Henson. I can understand Dr. Seuss. I can even understand George Lucas. How in the name of heaven did Washington Irving get into this group? <laughs> well, he was actually my first one. Um, I know. And he, and he he actually, you know, it, it, it turns out he's another iconic creative. I didn't know that all, all four of them actually fit together. They all were sort of. Uh, innovators in their chosen field. They were, you know, there were no sets of rules. Irving's the first American to make his living solely by writing. No one had ever done that before. Um, Irving is the one that figures out how to viral, you know, do viral marketing before viral marketing exists. He figures out what it's like to be a famous author and how if you want to build an addition to your house, you write a novel or you write, you write a book because it'll be a bestseller. Um, you know, so what I, that was what I found fascinating about Irving was his personality almost more than the work. The work is really important to him, but what I love is he's like Forrest Gump almost in that, you know, I'd get to one chapter and I'd go, oh, oh my God, I get to write, like, he's going to be Dickens in this chapter. This is going to be great. Oh, my God, Mary Shelley wants to date him. How, this is going to be so great. Oh, my God, he's going to re- meet 14-year-old Edgar Allan Poe. You know, I mean, he knows everybody famous. Um, but I actually got into – him, I didn't know that much about him until I started the research on him as well. Um, you know, as an, as an English major, we're taught, you know, you get Rip Van Winkle maybe in a collection, and we all sort of know Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It's one of those sort of American DNA stories. But yeah. I fell in love with his work through his Christmas stories. What, what I didn't know, um, and this was how I found him, is I'd been reading a book about the history of Christmas in the United States because I'm a huge Christmas junkie, and it talked about how all these all these traditions that we think go back ages, that we think that they're English traditions that we adapted, like the Yule log and wassail and Christmas carols and children and gifts. Um, basically, Irving made all those traditions up and then just told us that they were old traditions, um, which I had never heard before. So I went and I found the short stories. They're hidden in plain sight. It's five short stories right in the middle of a collection called The Sketchbook. Sketchbook is 32 short stories. The first story is Rip Van Winkle. The last story is Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And then nobody knows any of the other, you know, 33 or 34 in there. Um, but there's five of them right in the middle. That is Irving's main narrator, a guy named um, uh, Jeffrey Cran. I can't remember who it is. Anyway, he's, he's, he pulls up at, on Christmas Eve in front of Squire Bracebridge's house, and he stays for Christmas. And Irving goes through all these old traditions and, you know, lays everything out that we think of as traditional Christmas. And the entire time he's turning to the reader and going, like, you all know this is baloney, right? I mean, he's like he's letting the reader in on the joke, but we don't care because it's so interesting, it's so cool um, that we sort of started to grab those traditions our own. And those stories were actually hugely influential on Dickens um, and framed a lot of the way Dickens set up Chris in A Christmas Carol. So Dickens sort of is is telling stories of Christmas traditions that didn't exist either because he was using Washington Irving as his source. Um, Now, Irving and Dickens turn out to be mutual friends and admirers of each other. 
um, which is a, a chapter that I loved writing. But that was really how I found Irving. I loved those Christmas stories, and his voice was so modern. Um, I was expecting to read Nathaniel Hawthorne and have sort of this Puritan prose to it, and Irving doesn't do that. Like I said, he, he's constantly breaking the fourth wall, turning to the reader and saying, like, you know, we, we know Squire Bracebridge is crazy, right? Like, well, what he's telling us is not true. Um, just this really fun, very American voice, and, um, and, and I just fell in love with that voice and that character, and, and it turned, just turned out that he was such an interesting guy um, I got dinged in one of the reviews in the Washington Post because they were saying, well, Jones doesn't really spend a lot of time doing literary criticism. And I thought, God, who's got time to do that when Mary Shelley's trying to date him? You know, I mean, it's just, it's just <laughs> life is just so, just so interesting. There was so much going on. But like I said, he, kind of, he, he really does fit in with my other three because he's an innovator. Um, he's, he's, you know, like Jim Henson, nobody had done puppets on TV until Jim Henson did, and he really figured out the way you make them work. You know, George Lucas yeah. was, is doing Star Wars, which no one understands, but he does, and he starts creating the technology he needs to make it happen. Nobody's writing for a living in, in you know, 1819, not in America. Irving's the one who figures out, like, how you run these traps. How do you prevent people from pirating your work? Even though, you know, even though we have a, a clause in the Constitution that's, like, all about copyright, all people had to do was take your book and if you buy it in Philadelphia and sail across the sea to London, then they can print it in London, and you're screwed. Um, Irving figured out how to like get around all these rules, like really advocated on the part of writers. So he's he's just he's such an interesting and innovative guy that he himself is um, is greater than some of his parts. I mean his his work is I don't want to say incidental because it's very important, but I mean he is a character and as an innovator is what I found so interesting. So he really does fit with those other those other three. Amazing. Well, I definitely. Do want to get a hold of you, and we're, we're going to do the Lucas book for sure. Um, All right. And I have to admit, every now and then I sit down and think, okay, so who else might fit into this pattern or genre that you have created? And you know, I've 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 thought about and tossed out dozens of names. I mean, they're uh-huh. just 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 from you know my understanding of you know, the pattern that I have seen in in the two books that I've read, you know, who else might fit into this sort of pattern? Not exactly, but this sort of Mm -hmm. pattern. And so, I mean, George and Ira Gershwin come to mind. Um, You know, they were creative geniuses, unbelievable. And, and, um, you know, but, uh, you know, you've got to find, I, I understand, it has to be somebody that really, you relate to and you just want to dive in head first and, and submerge yourself for you know, five years. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, 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 I love, uh, you know, Duke Ellington, but I'm probably not the right person to write a Duke Ellington book. Um, I love Chaplin. Now there's a Chaplin book actually coming out this month. He was one for a long time. There were a lot of books on him and then he sort of fell off the mantelpiece and they're starting to write about him again. Um, you know, I really, I've never written about, a musician, so I, I really was trying to think of a, you know a, a really creative groundbreaker. People were telling me I should have done David Bowie because sort of the holy trinity in Jim Henson's life is there's a moment when Jim Henson, George Lucas, and David Bowie are all working together on Labyrinth, <laughs> and so people were like, you have to do oh. David Bowie next. You've already done Henson and Lucas. Um, somebody's already done a really good job with Bowie. So the hard part is if you if you pick an icon, which are the subjects that I tend to take on. Um, it's often hard to find icons that haven't been done. 
or or haven't been done recently or and there's sometimes in my opinion where I don't think they've been done well. Um so so that makes that makes it hard because a lot of times there are books out there on subjects. One of the I, you and I were talking before of the show um I'm a huge Beatles fan and I really wanted to write a book on Ringo. I've never done a musician either. Uh and I made I, I actually made a serious run at him um and he finally told me no. I did the same thing to Mick Jagger. Um now is Ringo a book I could write without ever interviewing him? Probably. Um, but again, you know, he's just, he's never been done. He's never sat down for the big interview. You know, Lucas wouldn't talk to me, but that cat has been talking on the record since 1964. Like just sit down. There's just, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of interviews. Ringo's probably the same way, but you know, um, he's just, he's never, Lucas has sat down for a biographer once in his life. Uh, now, he hated the book, which is why he's never sat down with another biographer again. Um, but Ringo's never even done that. So, you know, without him, it's not a book that I could have really done. Um, I would have loved to have done a book like that. Wow. Uh, it, it just <clears> – <throat> well, when you, when, you, when you put those parameters on it, you know, it is um, – it, it is a tough – it is a tough um, – I mean, you know, you, you've got – um, you, you've you've certainly got a lot of five years left in, in you. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, the book I'm writing right now is I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm writing a history of the U.S. Capitol building because um, I was I was congressional staffer. I worked in that building for almost ten years, um, and it's 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 a story that hasn't been done. It's been done as you know tourist documents and as kind of architectural histories, but no one's ever done sort of a you know. A, um, a grand tour of the building as a character in history. Um, and what I find so fascinating about the Capitol is the building itself is fascinating, but there are so many interesting characters surrounding it as well. So that's what I'm really hoping I can bring to life again is I just, again, I love the creative process and there's a huge creative process going constantly into that building and bickering over who's going to do what and what it's going to look like and having to run it all the way up the line to the president of the United States to have them make a decision on things. And um, it's just, it's just been a really fascinating book. It's taking me longer than I want it to, but I'm hoping it will be out in 25 at this point. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, <clears throat> judging from the length of your other books, I can understand why it would probably <laughs> take that long. I'm trying not to do that one again with this one. Yeah, I'm. I'm. What is Henson's like? Five eighty-seven, and Lucas, I think it's six oh three, and Deuce, I can't remember. I think it's five hundred something. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't shut up. Apparently, can I, Barbara? No, I. I have found that, but but happily, <laughs> it was interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I, mean, I had a. And that's often the hard part. Is it's not just what goes into a book, but what doesn't go in can often be as hard. Well. I, I can remember having a 600-page book on Flint's, and and I have read 600 pages on, on archaeology and Flint's, and I don't ever need to read another one again ever. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't, I don't actually, I I don't look at how many pages a book is. You know, I I, I usually look into the book, and if it's something that, that fascinates me, I, I'll book the author no matter how long it is. But um, mm -hmm. I think Gary Wayne um, is, a, is, is a very prolific writer. His, his first book was Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and he's got the second volume coming out. And when I took a look at it, and I, it wasn't the number of pages. It was the material he covered, and there were 
seven sections, and when I spoke with him about doing an interview, I said, you know, this is not a one-week interview. This is a seven-week right. interview, one one week on every section. And he said, let's do it. So, I mean, I got two months of, of shows booked already. It's really <laughs> cool. Outstanding. <laughs> and it means I can, re- I can enjoy reading it and not have to really keep plowing. But... Um, but you know your books are, are fascinating, and I, I in my spare time I will you know what about Spielberg or is there too much done on him? Uh, he was recently done a really spectacular book by Joseph McFarland I think is that his name McBride I can't remember and it, I mean it's thicker than my books are right. it is a humongous book fantastic I used it as my primary resource uh, on Spielberg when I was writing the Lucas book in fact. Oh my. Yeah, it's it's, well, they, they all... it's a it's a phone book, yeah. Well, you know, there there can be too much you know about somebody too. True. And <laughs> and, and and you know, you don't need to have the genealogy of the milkman. Um but but uh and you don't do that. So but it it it's there are so many you do it so well, it, it it would be such fun to see you do a lot of these people because you have a unique way of doing it and, and I don't think anybody else copies your style, so it, oh, it's, it's I, sort I, of I, like I appreciate. I appreciate that, and I I hope to keep on doing them. So. Well, it's it's funny because now Mark Eddy um, interviewed you on your um, uh, on your book on Washington Irving, and I'm highly tempted on because Mark and I interview so differently. Um, uh-huh. I'm, I'm highly. I, I may well come back at Washington Irving after we do Lucas because um, Mark Mark comes from you know we come from different backgrounds so that so right. that you know his interview and my interview will cover different aspects and different areas totally so and in many cases we've we've you know we've spaced it out so it's not obvious but you know we've done the same author and and the interviews always pull out different aspects of the book so it's it's uh it's it's never a downside to have you know two different interviewers come at you from two different directions so oh, i'm definitely you know i will i will i will dive into him because you know he's he's like like mozart you know a fabulous fabulous well my, mozart I'm sure, I'm sure has been done up the wazoo but um or nostradamus that would be fun too but you know, not a lot is well. There's a lot written, but it 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 would be fascinating to see you do one of those guys because um, while there is a lot of literature out there for it, it's not done the way you do it. So oh. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't let that stop you. But um, at <laughs> one point in time, um, there were Dr. Seuss books that that got um, kind of blacklisted i guess i don't know what else you'd call it and you know why so you've got six books that seuss enterprises which is the business that audrey his his widow set up after he died uh it's called seuss enterprises dr seuss enterprises that manage the the company now on his on his behalf and um you know it's they take care of the branding and they take care of the licensing, but they also administer his, his estate and his, and his, and his books. And, uh, God, was it two years ago now? It seems it's gone so fast. They took 
they decided to let six books go out of print. They never banned them or anything like that, but they just let them go out of print. Um, and it's, you know, when, when, when people, people start to get wrapped around the axle on it, it's, it's six books that I don't think anybody could actually name. Like uh, now the only, probably the biggest name on the list is, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry street is first one. Um, Cause that one's got, as I said a little earlier, a problematic de- depiction of a, of a Chinese person. Uh, you know, initially it says something about a Chinaman who eats with sticks and Susan drew this, you know, very racist version of a Chinese person um, that he tried to, even in his lifetime understood that was problematic and tried to fix it and still never really got it fixed. Um, so they let that one go out of print. Um, there's uh, another one. Uh, I think one of the other books is um, if I ran the zoo and that one is, um, I think one of his best as far as the the rhyme goes in it, but that's another one that when Seuss has to draw exotic cultures, he tends to get what I call pictographically lazy. Um, so the way he tends to draw an exotic culture is they have slant eyes or they dress like African natives did in movies from the 1930s. Um, you know, it's it, in the same way that, Rich people in Seuss books wear monocles and top hats. I mean, it's just he's just being, he's being pictographically lazy on this. Um, it's uh-huh. it's racist. It's racist work. I don't think Seuss himself is a racist, but it's it's definitely racist work. And I think Seuss Enterprises got a little weary of of people constantly, you know, point, rightly pointing it out that they just decided to let the books go out of print. Um, you know, there's you can. <laughs> Sometimes you, you see them pop up on eBay for, you know, hugely, hugely, you know, expensive prices. But, um, but you know, they, they just they, – they let them go out of print. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there's parts of those books that I think are, are still important to the Sioux story. Like um, If I Ran the Circus is one of the books that is on the list. That book is the first time you'll see the word nerd appear anywhere in American English. Um, Seuss created that word. And at the time that he used it, it was – it was a word he gave to a kind of bird that has like a sweater on. It's really weird looking. And it very quickly took on the meaning that we now give to it. I mean, within like a year of that book coming out. So, you know, there's still interesting stuff in those books, but I, I can see why I totally understand why Steve Enterprises took them out of circulation because, you know, it, it really has to do with, you know, depiction of exotic cultures and representation, things like that. Deuce, you know, even in his lifetime, um, he, he acknowledged that work he had done during World War II, for example, um, was really terribly racist pictographically, especially the way he depicted Chinese people or, or Japanese people. Um, now, his work at that time is no worse than even American propaganda was at that time. Um, and Seuss never depicted the Japanese as apes, for example, as some editorial cartoonists did. But you know, there's some work in that period that's kind of the the, the low point of his career. You know, it's not a good look. Um, Seuss, in his lifetime, said, you know, when I when I did that work, I I thought it was funny at that, um, and now I'm not so sure. So you know, it was something that he even reckoned with in his lifetime. Um, people often said to him, like, there there are no women in your books, and he and his response was. Um, if you can tell me which of my characters is female, I'll leave you something in my will. I mean, that that gets to that, to that issue of how his stuff doesn't look like anything else. Um, now, where he got in trouble with that was in, um, I think it's in uh, Mulberry Street again. He talks about um, 
know, something was so obvious that even even Sue could think of that. Like he, you know, he he, he puts his foot in it in that one, and, and that was one that somebody right, somebody rightly pointed that out to him in his lifetime, and he acknowledged that yeah, that was that was a bonehead move. So like I said, that's, this is something Sue himself even reckoned with before he died, and that the estate I think was still was still working with and still still struggling with over the last, especially over the last maybe decade or so, and finally just decided to let those books go out of print. Now, it's again, also not the first Seuss books that have been taken out of print. In Seuss's lifetime, two of his books went out of print, um, so it is not unheard of for his books to go out of print either. Well, if anybody out there is looking to find any of these books, if you go to ABE Books, mm-hmm. um you can find them because if I ran the circus, is there for five bucks. So, oh, is it um, really? Okay, well there you go. Yeah. So, uh, I love ABE books because you know when somebody you know gets smart and tries to take something out of publication, it's not really well. It's out of publication, but there are places you can find them, and ABE books is a great place to look. Um, I yep. know if I ran the circus, is there, but um, I didn't didn't go beyond that one, but I would imagine possible to pick up some of the other ones there as well. And not a bad idea to do it, by the way. Nope, probably not. Yeah, because they're on Amazon, they're expensive, but if you can get them over ABE, it's probably the better place to go. Yeah, that, that's my favorite place to go, actually. You know, yeah, they're a great it, It's kind of, oh, geez, yeah. Um, so, so if, if, you know, I, I kind of, there, there's one of the books, and I can't remember the name of it. Where, where the two, the two, cult, the two towns or whatever, the the whole population is divided by people who are black on one side and white on the other, and then, and then it's the reverse in the other one. And I can't remember the name of the of the store of the book. So that but, sounds like the the sneeches, and that has to do with having stars on your belly. Um, some of them have stars on their belly, some don't. And then eventually okay. a, a snake oil salesman comes along and he's got a machine that can give anybody a star. And then what happens is everybody starts getting stars and uh, they come to realize that that they're ultimately meaningless, which is sort of the lesson you can take away from the blue checks on Twitter now, I guess. But, um, but uh-huh. you know, that was his story. That was his, that was sort of his, one of his deliberate, you know, a deliberately messagey book, which he didn't do very often. I just, I, I, I can find, um, I can find, you know, spiritual messages everywhere here. So, you know, it, it to me it was it was amazing, and it reminded me a little bit of a, a star a Star Trek episode where, yeah, you the know, they, these two yeah. they they were they were arguing and wrestling through time, and yeah, the there was no difference. Black on, his, on one half, and the other guy's black on the other half. Yeah, it's the Sharon. Yeah, it's a yeah. great one. So, so that. Um, there's a message there if you want to dig for it. Other than that, it's a great story, but it's teaching you a message. And um, I think that that some of us just take things so casually and so subliminally, we don't look for something else there as far as a message goes. And whether he intended it or not, the message is there and constantly. And I think one of the other things that, that – that you brought out that that was so incredibly sweet was how well he re- related to children um and and you know you, you mentioned 
this is somewhere it's mentioned in your material, that he never talked down to anybody. But he, not only did he not talk down, he talked to children the same way he would talk to an adult, which was, which was phenomenal. And I think very appropriate. I know I never talked baby talk to my son. Never. Mm-hmm. And and um I think there's you you're 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 respecting the spirit within as being the same as yours. Perhaps not in a different in a different size package, but it's still there and I think that children picked up on that and and paid a lot more attention to his wisdom than parents often give credit to yeah well and you know i and as you and i talked about at the beginning of this i think that's one of the reasons his work still sells and still resonates is because seuss never talks down to his audience he's right in the eye um he's meeting them at their level he never thinks that they're stupid i i talked with mike spritz who was one of seuss's editors um as a young man even and he said you know we always assumed that our audience was smarter than we were talking about the kids um, and, you know, and that was one of the things that Seuss would tell um, aspiring children's book writers. They said, you know, understand they're the hardest group to write for because if you try to pull a fast one on them, they will see you coming a mile away. He's like, adults, adults are easy to fool. Kids are not. And they will call you out on it. Um, the, one of Seuss's famous quotes, he said, is that um, adults are basically outdated children and to hell with them. <laughs> so, so, uh, so he had, you know, he had all the respect in the world for the for for kids, and just, you know, I think that's why he put all that that that's why he put all that work into pinning those books up on the wall and seeing the way they looked on the page. You know, he was really thinking about the way that book was going to as an object in a child's hand. You know, is, is the line too long? Um, the rhyme scheme works, but is the line too long? Is it going to run into the into the seam in the middle and the kid won't be able to read the last word very well. I have to bend the page to read it. You know, Seuss thought of all of that from the, you know, from the kid's perspective, nobody was doing that. And I think that's why his work is so, it's so timeless. Why? So, so I think Seuss would be appalled um, when we hear that, you know, um, Madonna's writing a book or, or, you know, Oprah's going to write a kid's book or whatever, you know, it's like, they always talk about, I'm going to write this children's book. You know, Seuss, Seuss would think that that was feeding the kids because it's not easy to do. Seuss would argue that it's not easy to do. Not everyone is cut out to write a children's book. I, I, I think he would be disappointed by this, this thing to put out, you know, celebrity children's books um, because to him they were to be taken very seriously. They were not to be tossed off casually. Um, you know, it was really hard work, and it would take him, you know, sometimes years to write these books because he every single detail down to the color – matters um sending the crayons to the publisher you know to the printing house match this specific color you had to figure out what color ublik was um so that they could match that color everything mattered what was the point of i i know that at one point when a book was about to come out or about to be published he would go down to the publishers and he would read it to the um people there yeah, whenever he would submit, when a book was finished, he would take it to Random House personally, and he would go to Bennett Surf, who was the publisher and the owner of Random House, uh, a real character. There's a Somebody's been working on a bio of him, by the way, for like, I think, 10 or 15 years at this point. Her name's Gail Feldman, and she needs to get it done here because I want to read it. Um, 
<laughs> but he would he would take it to Bennett Surf's office and he would read it aloud and hold the pages up so everybody could see the art on the pages. So it, it was one of those. It was a big uh, production. People could not wait for him to come in with the latest Seuss books. So we would could read them out loud. Was there a point to it? Uh, or or no, did, I he, did he? I I think in a way it was uh, it, it was saying, this is what it's going to feel like when you read it to a child. You know, I think that's a great point. I, w- I wish I had thought of that. Actually, I'm a little mad that I didn't think of that. Um, no, I, I think that's I think that's probably you know this is what it's like reading to a kid. You read the words and you hold it up, or they're sitting in your lap and they're looking at both. And I think that that actually that's that's a great point. Darn it, Barbara, I wish I'd thought of that. Well, geez, you know, you should have asked me. Um, <laughs> no, it just, it, it great sense that if you can enthrall the child within an adult, you know you've got something here. Because adults come in with one level of awareness, and if you can take them back to being a child and being enthralled by the magic of the words, then, then you've got it. Then, the, actually, at that moment in time, the adult is the is a better critic because you have to reach the child within each of those people. And if you can yeah, do that, I mean, you think, can reach a child. I think that gets to why you know something like Sesame Street was so successful because it it was aimed at both audiences, the, the kids and the the adults, and it never talked down to either audience. Yeah, it's just. Um, I, didn't they? Didn't they even almost create a stage for him at one time? A stage for him to read. Yeah. Um, so his. So when he was when he was the editor of the beginner books, they essentially gave him the top floor of uh, suites at, at Random House, and he elevated everything up off the floor, so it was it was almost like kid sized. Um, but it was like, you know, being in a tree house and then, and it was just, you know, it was very whimsical and you'd walk up these stairs into these very Susian offices. So yeah, it was one of those places that he, he loved to bring people to those offices at Random House. It was, it was something constructed just for him. Well, Bennett Surf absolutely recognized the creative genius that he had. I mean, um, well, you know, he, 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 he Bennett was... Surf, Bennett Surf, the publisher at Random House, you know, he's publishing people like James Joyce, like some really heavy hitters. And he said on the record, you know, he said, we publish a lot of authors, a lot of great writers at Random House, but we only publish one true genius. And that true genius is ah. Dr. Seuss. He was. He was. Um, you know, I almost, I almost, you know, am curious as to did, did he illustrate his will? I mean, that was something that I would think he would do. <laughs> no, he did not. He did not. No. I've often no, thought about get, putting my did, will. He did get to do he, something uh, that not a lot of people. He did do something a lot. Of, not a lot of people get to do with their fans is that Seuss did get to say goodbye to his readers. Um, his last book, which is Oh, the Places You'll Go, which is one of his biggest selling books to this day, because again, it's timeless enough. People give it to people at graduation, and when they get new jobs, and when they move to new cities, and um, and it's. And it's Sue sort of putting everything into that one book that he has learned and that he's loved. And you'll see um, 
you know, tips of the hat to his old advertising work. You'll see people standing in line that look like they came out of a, an ad from like 1928, one of his old cartoons from, you know, Flit. Um, but it's, you know, it's him talking about um, off and away. And, 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 um, Pete, and he did not read that one personally at Random House. He was too old and sick by that time, but he had it delivered to Random House. And Michael Frith, who I mentioned earlier, who was one of his editors, um, was no longer working at Random House, but had come to visit and saw that book with the big pages laying on a flat had just been delivered. And he opened it up and started reading through us and he reading through it and he said to someone else, he said, You you know what this is, don't you? He is telling us all goodbye. Um, so Seuss got to got to go out on his own terms, which a lot of creatives don't get to do. Well, you look at somebody like Jim Henson, who, you know, died at fifty three, didn't get to go out on his own terms. Seuss got to go out on his own terms, which is pretty cool as a as a creative. Well, yeah, but he didn't have to go out, he just didn't go to the doctor. Uh, well, I mean, yes and no. Jim on that one, but um like I don't I don't think Jim knew how ill he was when that happened. Um um, oh, I'm sure. I'm not. not sure going. I'm not sure going to the doctor even. You know, even had he done it days earlier, would have necessarily saved him. Uh, that's that's one where he, you know, when I was writing that book, I got swine flu when I was in London, and oh, I understand hi. because because I literally thought I might die, and you know what I did? Nothing. Because I thought, well, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'll get over it because that's what happens. And really, I mean, come on, no one's going to die of this. Uh, and I got over it. And I felt terrible. And I got, and I really think that's kind of what Jim thought is, I'm I'm 53. This isn't going to be anything fatal. It's just a bad case of the flu, uh, and just did not really know or appreciate how sick that he was. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had people say, well, because he was a Christian scientist and Christian scientists, some of the Jim was not a practicing Christian scientist at that time. Um, he had doctors. He went to the doctor to get insured for making his movies. He wasn't doctor reverse. Um, you know, it was just, I just don't think, you know, Jim's problem at that time was he was a dude and dudes don't go to the doctor. We just don't have guys that we go to regularly. Jim did not have a guy, didn't have a doctor he went to regularly. Well, you know, also, you know, there's, there's an element of, I have so much left to do. Um, not, not in the case of Dr. Seuss, obviously, but I, I think that so many times people who are, who have a genius, it's a matter of I have a lot to do. I you know I don't have time. I mean I don't. Well, put I mean that, in that 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 is the irony of Jim's life is because you know when Jim was a young was still in high school uh, or just just started college his his older brother died in an automobile accident. I think Jim understood that there were you know that life is short that there may never be enough time. I think he knew that, which is why I think a lot of his early work centers around time. You know one of his first short films is called Time Peace. Um, so I think that is the sad irony in Jim's life is that he did worry there would never be a time, which is why he's just perpetually in motion, um, which unfortunately didn't turn out to be true. Well, how old was he when he died? Well, oh, 53. you're talking Hanson. Yeah. Yeah, Hanson. Yeah, Seuss was wow. 80, 84, I think, or maybe even older than that. It just, you know, but and there doesn't seem to be anybody around at this point in time. I mean, you know, maybe maybe the um, Harry Potter stuff, but that's older. Um, well, and I, I think that's fair, and I think I use that example in the epilogue to the book because, you know, 
even though even though Rowling is aiming her work at a slightly older audience than Seuss did, she made reading fun and entertaining and interesting for kids. And that, for Seuss, was the real job, was give kids books that they deserve. Give kids books that they want to read. Don't give kids a book you think they should be reading. Seuss always said that was the cruelest thing you could do to a kid is give them what you thought was a good book. Let kids find the books. And I think that's what J.K. Rowling does with those books is kids wanted to read. I mean, you would see kids lined up at midnight at, you know, at, at the bookstore to buy the latest Harry Potter. He made reading fun again. And that was what Seuss saw as his mission was reading. You know, people, people don't read because, you know, I mean, they, they don't read because they find some books boring. Um, and Seuss thought that was the worst thing you could do was be boring. And, and Rowling, I think, is, is the legit heir in that regard because you had, you had kids carrying around these books that were 900 pages long. You know, you had fifth graders oh, carrying yeah. around to read them. You didn't see that. I mean, that didn't exist until she came along. She actually made, you know, young adults hip again. Well, there is a spinoff of them, too. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where she goes with that. But, you know, quite, quite often a spinoff for something, you know, that, that is that um, famous, they don't work, but but her spinoff seems to you know um, be doing well. I don't know what you you can't compare it to the other stuff because I mean she could retire happily on that, but she has a mind that's full of magic. So I would imagine it, it will continue. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and you've seen Seuss Enterprises every you know three years or so. They find an undiscovered you know manuscript of Seuss that they trot out and publish. You know, like they had the one I can't remember. Uh, what pet should I get? I think was one that came out, and you know, I again talking with people who who knew and who'd worked with who said, I understand why Seuss Enterprises is doing that. They like to keep expanding the brand. But they said, you know, there's a reason Seuss put this in what he called his bone pile. This is where he put discarded ideas. Um, I, I think Seuss would be horrified that some of those books have seen light of day. There's, we might think they're amazing, but there's a reason he put them in his bone pile. I think he would just be think it was awful that people are going through his old abandoned manuscripts to find things by him to publish to produce new Seuss books. Well, I, you know, it, it's funny because they've they've made a movie of a cartoon of the Lorax. They've made a movie of Horton. They've made a. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how many of them have become a cartoon. Um, hopefully, they're they're not going to do to him what they've done, you know, what, to Disney, where they've taken the cartoons and put real people in them, which is terrifying. What they did to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, yeah, I mean, they did that. They did that to uh, the Grinch. Like I know people who their, their favorite version of the Grinch is the Jim Carrey Grinch. So you know, sometimes it works. But on the other hand, they did it with Cat in the Hat, and it was a disaster. Well, yeah, I mean, the the cartoon for some reason is is just so much lighter and and you flow with it. And, I mean, you love the dog and, you know, I mean, it's just um, Jim Carrey was was good, but it's it's just not the cartoon. And, you know, I'm I'm. I'm old. I remember the book, and then I remember the cartoon, and, and to have it be unanimated disappointed me. It took the magic out of it. That's what it does. Right. It takes the magic out. Um, 
and you know you kind of wonder where he would have gone with it, where he would have taken it. Would he would he have gone into space with it? Would he have you know what would he have done? Yeah, I mean he um, he he didn't do them in books. He did let the Grinch and the Cat in the Hat meet in a TV like a half hour TV show once. It was called like. Halloween night is Grinch night, I think is what it's called, and I think it's the two of them meeting. Um, but I don't think he would ever have done that in the books. He was a little more deliberate with the books. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, he, he wrote, what, 60-some, you said? I think 65, yeah. Wow. Almost once, almost, it sends me back to wanting to sort of reconfigure my library again, because his his alliteration his poetry it, it, it had it had such magic to it um and it had it it had it you know right from the very beginning i mean some of his early work not not necessarily um books but but his his drawings um was he doing these kinds of drawings when did when did the cartoons start or were they always there uh his style sort of evolved, but I mean, you you look at his work in college even, and the look is there already. Um, and by the time he's doing his cartooning for, you know, Vanity Fair, the New, well, he never did The New Yorker, but, um, you know, Life Magazine and things, I mean, he's already got his, his style set and and wasn't going to mess with that too much. I mean, again, there's you, you, you can tell a Dr. Seuss drawing the minute you see it. Um, there's some, like I said, there's things about it. You don't know why you start to realize everybody's got eyelashes and things like that, but there's, there's Seuss's artwork has a look, um, that you can notice a mile away. And he, and he came upon it very early. So if you see Seuss cartoons from the, from the twenties versus books he was doing in the seventies, uh, they still look very similar. He, 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 his, he, he stuck with the style that worked for him. I, I now he would often wow. say that that he's drawing, you know, he, he said he would look at a bear and draw it, and people would say, this doesn't look anything like a bear, and he'd say, well, that's the way it looks to me. <laughs> but, but uh-huh. you know, his, his, his wife said that, you know, the joints come out all wrong, and, you know, that he can't actually draw anatomy, and Seuss just said, yeah, this is the way it looks to me. So, you know, I think he would say, I'm, I'm doing the best I can, but it gave him a very distinct look. It did. Now, Green Eggs and Ham is the best-selling book out there which surprises me um what what was it that made it you know um a bestseller so that book has the one of the smallest word lists of any of the seuss books um so it's early readers can grab it um it was the result of a bet between he and bennett surf after cat in the hat came out and cat in the hat is aimed at you know maybe third grade readers, and so it had a much larger vocabulary list that Seuss could choose from. After Cat in the Hat came out, Bennett Sir said, you know, okay, smart guy, I'll bet you 50 bucks you can't write a book that uses 100 unique words or less, or maybe even said 50 unique words or less. Um, And Seuss won that bet, although, as you always said, Bennett Sir never paid him. and that's the book that becomes Green Eggs and Ham. And again, if that's a book, if when you read that book, watch what he's doing to win that bet. Is he's repeating the same words over and over, just in different order. You know, it's 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 um, you know, would you have them with a box? 
no, I would not have them at the box. Would you eat them with the fox? I would not eat them with the fox. I will not eat them with the fox. I will not eat them in a box. You know, it's like it's the same words over and over again, um, but Susie's using them so rhythmically you almost don't even notice. So it lets them get away with a very, very small word list. Um, and so, so there's no – I think the only words in there that he's cheating, I think the word somewhere – is in that book, and that is not on the word list. But I think Sue thought it wasn't cheating because the word some is on the list and the word where is on the list. So I think he thought it wasn't cheating to use a, a word like somewhere. Um, but it's, you know, it's got the shortest word list, unique words of any, any book, but I think that's what makes that book so popular. Is you, you, know, you can read that book in kindergarten. Um, Cat in the Hat, you probably read in kindergarten, but it's it's a little bit, you know, it's got a bigger word list and it's got a, it's a little mm-hmm. more complicated. Um, Fox, you know, Green Eggs and Ham is a very simple concept. It's trying to get somebody to do something they don't want to do, and that's really it. Um, and every little kid has been part of that. They've been on the receiving end of it. They've been on the on the other end as well, trying to get a friend to do something they don't want to do. I think it's it's a completely relatable setup. I think that's the reason that book still works so well. I think it's the reason kids love it because uh, every kid's been told to eat something they don't want to eat or <laughs> go do something they don't want to ah. do. Um, so I, so I think that's I think it's the reason kids love that. And it's just and again it's just really fun to read. But now that you know the secret behind it that it's got that short word list, go back and read it again and look at the way he's making that book work. A lot of repetition, a lot of a lot of just putting, you know, moving the same words around, using the same five words over and over on the page. You know, I think the most used word in that book is Sam, in fact, um, because that's the punchline at the end of every page. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to. I know. I think my introduction was Bartholomew Cubbins in the 500 Hats. Yeah. Yeah, with, and again, very different kind of book. That's more of a classic fairy tale kind of book, and 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 kind of terrifying in places. I mean, the king's going to cut his head off at one point in that book. You know, it's it's sort of a it's it's just a second book, um, but it's much more like what we think of a traditional fairy tale. You know, it's got a king and it's got a castle and it's got an executioner and you know off with his head and so on. But it's you know it's it's Seuss trying to figure out his group back then um you know it's a very different book than than uh, mulberry street is for example um but you know and he and he uses bartholomew covens a couple of times one of his few recurring characters but um you know it's hard to believe that's the same writer who's giving you you know green eggs and ham it's just it's it's just doing something very different because it's so early in his career well now when he did the mulberry street book uh you mentioned that the people actually went to Mulberry Street to try to find his house, and it wasn't there. It was on a no, he doesn't, street. Yeah, I, there, is, there is a, yeah, there is a Mulberry Street in Springfield. Seuss does not live on it. He lives on Fairfield, which is a little bit further away. But there is a Mulberry Street for sure in Springfield. Wow. It, 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 he, his take on reality was just so incredible. It's almost like, in a way, he lived in a book and and you know he he did weird fun funny things you know when he cut loose he really cut loose and you wonder where was his reality was it on the on the drawing board or was it in life itself i think it was in that office more than anything else that little office where he worked i think that was i think that was how he would answer that um but you know he was 
he was always working. I mean, it was if he wasn't, you know, he was if he didn't have a book that was in production at Random House, he had one pinned up on the walls, and at the same time, he'd have another one he was, you know, still working on and then first drafts on. He always had something going on. Um, you know, his, his Helen had this great quote, which any writer I think can relate to, or maybe even any creative, where she said, "He's miserable when he's." Um, not working on a book and he's even more miserable when he is. So, you know, it's one of those things like, like doing the book work was hard, but he wanted to be doing it. And when he was done writing the book, he was mad that he wasn't writing a book. So I think anybody can relate to that. Like he just, you know, he wanted to be doing that work no matter how hard it was. You kind of would love to, 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 to listen to his head, you know, as, as things were going around in his head. Um, I know I, I do a little writing and, and, and often um, if I go to go to bed, my head keeps working on what I was working on that prevents me from going to sleep. You know, I'm tired enough to not get up, but I'm also awake enough to not go to sleep. So yeah. I'm wondering if he had a similar or you do have a similar um, experience with that. Um. Sometimes, but usually it, it comes about when you're you're trying to finish something and you can't let it go. Um, you can't not be doing it. You know, it's like people always talk about how their best ideas come in the shower. Well, it's just because you're always thinking. Your brain's always trying to solve the problem you've got. Um, and Seuss often had that problem. You know, he was working, you know, you've got the famous story, too, of Chaplin trying to figure out how a blind girl confuses a tramp for a rich man, you know, and it ends up being the sound of a car door slamming. Um, Sue's had that problem with Sue's had that problem with um, the Lorax. I think at one point, like, didn't you know? He 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 ended up going on safari because he was just stuck. Uh, and he said there was something about sitting one day and seeing this herd of elephants like overrunning, I think, a swimming pool or something, that just just brought it just like the gates opened. Um, you know, it's, it, sometimes it's just, it just it just takes something weird to to knock the cobwebs out. Um, you know, and, but Seuss was, was constantly thinking. And what's, what's so amazing with him is, you know, think about the weird names that he gives to stuff, you know, a, a, a Lorax. Like somebody once said, where, do you, where did you get a name like the Lorax? And he said, well, I drew a picture and it was a Lorax, um, which sounds flip, but I think that's really the way his brain worked. Um, you know, like where do you get the – I mean, the word Grinch didn't exist until Seuss made it up. Now, if you tell uh-huh. people to, like, start making up Seussian names, all of our names that we come up with sound so stupid and so forced. It's like when people try to write, Jabber, you know, something like Jabberwocky, like Lewis Carroll's making up words in Jabberwocky. And if anybody else tries to do that, all the words sound made up. There's something about Lewis Carroll's word choice in Jabberwocky that all the words sound organic. And Seuss is really uh-huh. able to do that with, with the, the words he picks, the names he gives things. They all sound like they existed already. And that's really tough uh, to do. But I think, that, again, that's, that's in any case of the way that brain is working. Uh, there's just something about being able to, like, tap into that, you know, giving something that's inorganic an organic name, uh, something that didn't exist, giving it a name that makes it sound like it's always existed. Um, you know, I mean, Ublik, you know, um, Sneetsu, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Grint, Lorax, all these, you know, this, this, this long list of names. Um, they all sound like they existed, um, and they didn't until he made it up. Nerd. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, what gives you personally greatest pleasure, jumping into a project and researching and struggling with it or actually finishing it and sitting back and wondering what comes next? So I think this mainly goes for nonfiction writers, although I'm sure people who write fiction have some some catharsis like this. But for on nonfiction, we love the research. Um, the research is the most fun part of it because you always feel there's something else you're going to find. Um, but that's also your part of your curse is because you're always worried there's something big that you did not find yet. Um, and so we often say in biography that biography is never finished. It's merely abandoned um, because you don't – You, <laughs> I would say you don't know what you don't know until you know you don't know it. Um, and that's uh-huh. what makes you crazy. That's what makes you crazy, especially writing nonfiction. And, you know, you'll find out, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't find that. I can't believe I didn't know that. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Um, you know, we work, we work very differently than novelists do or people who are writing, you know, young adult fiction or something. Like they'll talk about they can go to a coffee shop and write for hours. We can't do that because we have to have all our junk with us. You know, we have our binders of information and, and our backgrounds and our notes and, you know, our, our books with our quotes and our references and stuff like that. Like we, we, by the time you get everything set up and ready to go, your coffee's gold. So, um, so it, it's, it's a little bit more uh, deliberate the way we have to do it. But it's, you know, it's, it's butt in the chair. Um, so I think the, the research is the stuff that we really like because that's the, that's the discovery. That's the exploring. That's trying to find something no one's found before. Um, and so I think, I think to a person, you ask biographers at least, what's your favorite part of the process? And we'll all say the research. Um, now, Washington Irving often said that the best part of writing was having written. Um, and I <laughs> think we can all – I think we can all – you can probably relate to that too, Barbara. I mean, the best part of it is, like, I love going yeah. back and reading reading one of my books and going, oh, wow, I really knew what I was doing here. Like, this is really good. Like, you love that feeling. And there's times you don't remember writing it, but it's like when you're – you know, there's nothing worse than staring at a blank page. I think I think the writing is the hardest part. It's the most important part, of course. Um, and But when you go back, the best feeling is when you go back – Years later, for example, to look, you know, sometimes I'll have to go look something up and I go back and I, and I start reading to find it and I catch myself still sitting there reading a half hour later and I go, okay, well, I, I think I, I think I knew what I was doing on this one. Like, this is pretty good. <laughs> um, you know, I, I read I read Irving, for example, and that's the one that I'm like, oh, I wish I could go back and do parts of that one over again because, I, you know, that was my first one. I, I hadn't quite figured it out yet. Uh, and there's places in there where I'm like, oh, I would, I would do that slightly different. I mean, that'll make you insane. But there's, there's places where I'm like, oh, I would love to do that. I would love to do that one one more time. Um, so, I, so anyway, I think, I think my favorite part is always still the, just the, 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 the research and the reading and the discovery and the interviewing and the going to visit. You know, when I was writing this book, I went to, I, I, I went to Springfield and I went to Seuss's house and I walked down Mulberry Street and I went to the, to the swimming hole and I went to the, you know, to the to the place where, you know, the guy has the mausoleum that inspired the look of some of his architecture. And, you know, that we loved it. I went to Dartmouth where I could go see, even though it's much bigger than it was in either. I wanted to go see Dartmouth and see where it fits in town. How far away was that from Springfield? And, you know, how would you have gotten there? So that's the kind of stuff that we really like. Again, Robert Carroll always talked about sense of place. Like he was writing about Lyndon Johnson. He was like, why did Johnson run across the lawn of the Capitol every day? 
And so Carroll went and did that, and he found out it's because if you ran across the front of the Capitol at that time of day, the sun was hitting it just right, and all the windows were lit. Um, and oh, so wow. he talked about, yeah. So it's that it's that sense of place, and so in, especially in biography, we love that sense of place. What did my subject see? What were they feeling? What was the smell there when they're doing that? Even if that doesn't even end up in the book, it at least helps you understand sort of where your subject is coming from. Yeah, I know. Uh, every now and then, I will hit against uh, across something that that I have, and and it's like, gee, that's beautiful. I wonder who wrote it. I can't put it up on the website. And then I, I literally send it through one of those um, things that, that, you know, will tell me if it's plagiarized or not. And if it's not plagiarized, then it was like, damn, did I write that? And, you know, yeah. it, it it can be a shock. Yes, and it's a great, but it's a great feeling when you're like, oh, okay, I was, I, was, I was pretty good at that. Yeah. Every now and then there's a phrase or two that just, you know, it's like, or or if I'm speaking and, and, and I say, uh, you know, spout a phrase, part of me says, write it down. That's, you you want to use that someplace sometime. And, of course, I never do. But, well, but that it's, is, it's, that is you know, the worst part. Yeah, that's the worst part. I've had moments where I'd be, you know, I'm having a problem with a transition or something, and I'm like, oh, God, and then I'll, you know, be in the shower or something, and I go, ah, ah, there it is. And I won't write it down because I'm like, well, that's so obvious. I'll remember that in the morning. And then, of course, I don't remember it in the morning. Right. <laughs> well, I, I am excited to see, you know, actually where you go next um, as far as biographies go. And and uh, does it have to be a person? Uh, no. I mean, that's, that, I'm – trying to treat my current subject of the, the capital as a, as a, I mean, I'm calling it my rough title for it is, you know, capital and American biography. Um, so I'm trying to write this as a biography of a, of a thing, of a inanimate object, which um, uh, is, I'm hoping shaping the way I'm thinking about it as I'm writing it. So. Or as a concept, you know, what, I guess, yeah. what was it supposed to be? Yeah, or yeah, if, yeah. if you if, biography you know. an idea, yeah. And and wonder what's under the cornerstone, because they always bury <laughs> yeah. something under the. If, if they can, if they can find it, that's been part of their challenge as well. They're not sure they know where it is. Well, that's with the White House as well, I think. Yeah, the the one in the in the Capitol, they think they found it. They're not a hundred percent positive, but. Um, you know, because it, you know, it goes under the, what is it, the southwest corner of where you start. Well, they realized there were several places on that building that could have been the southwest corner. <laughs> so they're never quite <laughs> sure. They found something that looked very odd found it, but they're not quite, they're not 100% sure. Were the Masons connected to that? Well, I mean, it was Washington helped lay the cornerstone, and he was a Mason, and so they brought the members of the, the Masonic Temple, a couple of, of from the region, one from D.C., one from Alexandria, uh, to help lay uh-huh. it. So it was laid in a, in, a Masonic, in a Masonic ceremony, which, you know, typically ends with a gigantic party, and this one was no different either. Um, but, you know, they, they, they lay it on top of a silver, a, like a silver platter, and they put, you know, corn on top and wine on top. So anyway, so they found something that they thought was a cornerstone, but there was no sign of the silver plate. Um, so they weren't sure if had it been stolen, did maybe it deteriorate. Or just, so that's why 
that's part of the reason that I'm not 100% sure they, if, whether they found it or not because there's no sign of that pl- of that silver plate. Oh, that's kind of cool. I yeah. you know, it sounds it sounds like it might be a really interesting book because, um, you know, depending on on what the philosophy was behind the the construction of it and and you know the what it was to represent, um, one would wonder if if that conception is still holds to this day or not. That's true. Yeah, I mean. It's- I still have a long way to go, so I've got a lot of things like that to think about. Well, I think it's fascinating. Of course, I, I love the people, but of course, we'll have to do the capital too. So, but but if we've got three or four years to go, I figure I can fit you in someplace in that. There in you that go. That works great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's. I think one of the joys of doing this show is that I get to talk to all of you guys who have done such amazing things and. And, you know, for a moment, you know, kind of interact with you and, and find out where you were coming from and where you were going and and uh, and learn a lot. I mean, I often tell people that Nightlight is my Ph.D. You know, I've I've read, gosh, I've read almost a thousand books in the 15 oh, wow. years oh. and and spoken with the authors. And I've learned a tremendous amount. Better than yeah, I have two masters, but but this is my PhD, and I am just having such a delightful time. It's it's far more enjoyable to be able to pick my subjects than to be told what I need to read in order to get a piece of paper. Absolutely, absolutely. I just noticed our time; we are out of it. And um, you want to let people know where they can find your, you and your books and, and everything else. Sure. You can always find me uh, over at brianjjones.com. Spell out J, Brian, J-A-Y, Jones.com. Uh, you can also find me running my mouth under that name over at uh, what's left of Twitter, I think. And uh, I've moved over <laughs> to Blue Sky for the most part. Blue Sky for the most part there as well. I'm on threads, but I don't post there as much yet. I'm still figuring that one out. So I've heard. I, you know, I, I'm looking into it and wondering, do I really want to get involved? And yeah, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, Twitter but, used to be really fun, but it's not. It's very different now. Well, well, people can find this show on um, YouTube and TalkStream Live and um, Rumble, and of course on Blog Talk and on about. 20 or 30 other servers so we will be out there on the airwaves for a very long time and hopefully even longer than it takes you to write a book but um, <laughs> I will get I will get a hold of you and we will book you in for next spring April May in there someplace for um, the George Lucas book I will look forward to it that would be great oh it will be fun so thank you so much for for um, for for spending your time with us and for getting more deeply into the material about Dr. Seuss, and um, I highly recommend the book. I also recommend the Jim Henson book because I enjoyed thoroughly reading both of them, and I'm looking forward to uh, George Lucas. So good night, everybody. Thank you for being here, and thanks again, Brian. Good night. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. Good night.